0: Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Knox.
1: And I'm Dr. David Knox. I'm
0: Dr. Janice Knox.
2: I'm Dr. Jessica Knox.
0: And we are the Doctors Knox.
3: You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, so today, I am super stoked to finally cross paths with a group of people I've been following and wanting to talk to for a really long time. I'm with the Doctors Knox. You might know them as the Knox Docs, um, but I'm with Rachel, David, Janice, and Jessica Knox. Thanks so much, everybody, for being willing to carve out the time to all come together and talk to me today.
2: Thank you for having me. Happy to be here with you.
3: Yeah, totally. It's. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a a lot of exciting things to talk about. I mean, one reason I wanted to get the four of you together. Is that um, one of the things throughout this conversation I wanted to explore are how your perspectives on uh, the endocannabinoid system, cannabis science, you know the clinical use of cannabis, um, how it varies slightly and overlaps as well. Um, but I thought it would be a very unique experience to kind of, you know, I always call these interviews, but really it's more of a conversation to just talk through some of these critical ideas that float around in cannabis science and the cannabis industry a lot. and just hear what your perspectives are and and kind of um, um, how your ideas have evolved over time and, and sort of what you're looking forward to in the future. So that's kind of my, my grand goal here. Um, and to start us off, um, the first question I want to pose to all of you um, is, you know, one of the main things that you all talk about is the endocannabinoid system, and that's something that you've become kind of popular for talking a lot about. So the first question I want to pose to you is: How do each of you individually conceptualize what the endocannabinoid system is? And um, I guess uh, Dr. David, we'll start with you, and then just kind of kind of go around and see how the conversation leads.
1: The uh, endocannabinoid system is kind of the uh, the maestro in the body. Mm. It is involved with uh, so many other, uh, you know, individual systems. And, uh, you know, it's kind of conducting them all to an extent. Uh, You know, we feel the main purpose of uh, uh, the endocannabinoid system is keeping everything else in balance. You know, it's homeostasis. Uh, So whether we're talking about neurotransmitters, the immune system, uh, the gastrointestinal system, even our reproductive system. Uh, you know, the uh, endocannabinoid system is really quite essential as part of the, the whole feedback mechanism that uh, keeps all this other signaling uh, activity in balance. Uh, so it's, uh, it's the conductor of them all, uh, in, in a sense. Uh, but it's also interesting, it's, it's not like, a, you know, a, a master sitting up in some spot, uh, you know, uh, trying to yeah. make something. <laughs> it comes down, it's, it's like you you've got uh, a, an engineer or a conductor in every location in the body, because the the endocannabinoid system uh, overall it it works locally. Every cell. Yeah, every cell. Uh, you know, has a, a you know, very local response, uh, and uh, you know, uh, so it's it's really kind of an intriguing and complex system in that uh, sense. Uh, but uh, you know, it just doesn't uh, lend itself to that. You know category breakdown that conventional medicines will often use, you know, neurology, uh, <laughs> endocrinology, immunology. I mean, you've got all these subspecialties and uh, that ECS is really what binds it all mm-hmm. together.
3: Yeah, definitely. And is and are the rest of you kind of in agreement with that, that general uh, description of the endocannabinoid system being this sort of um, conductor of the symphonies of all of these, these different processes going on in the body.
4: I I think so. I think the basic endocannabinoid system and its different components, that's pretty basic. What I am more excited about is finally figuring out that it's just bigger than the ECS and how many things that are interacting at the same time or in parallel, you know, each system of the body actually has its own endocannabinoid system and they're all communicating with each other to keep the body in balance. But with that being said, that, that system is just a, a part of a bigger lipid signaling system. And I think when we really figure that out, what that is and how complex it is and get through it, then we're really gonna be able to change health. So when you think about THC, it doesn't just work on that CB1, CB2 receptor, Right. right? It's working on other things as well, as are the endogenous cannabinoids it's working on other things as well so it's a much more complicated picture than we realized And that deep dive to try to understand more than than what we see what we know at this point is what's going to lead us to make more effective drugs and therapies i mean novel things that really will answer questions even more than just addressing the conventional description of the endocannabinoid system. That's my realization of what I'm finding yeah. out. It's big, it's bigger than that even.
3: Yes, yeah. I, I love hearing that because I mean something that has me excited is thinking about how one, you know, one thing I like to point out to people is that our our basic conception that we often hear shared a lot in the cannabis industry of what the endocannabinoid system is, it really started to come about in the late nineties or so and it's rapidly evolving and just looking at the fact that you have cannabinoid receptors that form complexes with other receptor types, ser- you know, serotonin receptors, dopamine receptors, all these different yeah. things, it 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 upends the way we think about all of these signaling systems. That's correct. And and realize how they're all connected and that just has me very, very excited because it goes way beyond cannabis, way beyond what we conventionally think of as the endocannabinoid that's system. Correct. So I'm very, very happy to hear you uh, to that, talk about that.
4: You know, a, a prime example of that is all the attention and research that's now going toward the gut, you know, brain mm-hmm. ECS axes. that is just, it's profound because that gut actually helps to create some of those endocannabinoids when that system is working properly. But no one thought about that before. So all these things are becoming to realization that it's just bigger than CB one, CB two, anandamide, and 2AG. I mean, if that's all you understand, you're at the you're at the starting line, right? Yeah. You got to go beyond that because it's it's huge, and that makes the sky the limit as far as what we can create and do with wellness.
3: And it and it ties in very deeply to this concept of. Um systems theory and personalized medicine in of one medicine, which I know at least in at least one talk I've, I've seen that, that you've done before, you've talked some about this uh, sort of in of one revolution that's coming, especially as we're able to understand Correct. things like nutrigenomics neut- and all sorts of other things. And we understand, you know, like uh, you were pointing out earlier, Dr. David of the, the different subspecialties and how we tend to box all these things in and ha- kind of have, tunnel vision sometimes about what a disease is and how it's affecting the body, but um, it seems like this expanding conception of the endocannabinoid system is really highlighting this broader movement in healthcare um, at large of rethinking medicine and health and how we approach that on an individual level.
0: But you know, it's also expanding our understanding of health outside of the medical clinic or Mm. the hospital setting. You know I'm actually growing pretty tired of how we use healthcare care and medical care synonymously because they don't work uh-huh. do the same. Thing,
3: that's right? a good point. yeah.
0: care happens in the clinic or in the hospital. that's where we're applying medical knowledge or applying medical therapeutics and whether those are monomolecular drugs or procedures and surgeries to addressing a diagnosis um, with an attempt, I think at times to address underlying you know causes, but we we don't go deep enough. And where healthcare actually exists is outside, right? I think the endocannabinoid system and the endocannabinoid dome is has taught us that this this great mechanism is constantly reacting and adapting to our not just our internal but external stimuli. And 24/7 we are encountering external stimuli in the ecosystems in which we live. Right? So it's forcing us to recognize how we interact with one another. I mean, we both have endocannabinoid mm-hmm. systems that are responding right now to our right. proximity with other organisms that have endocannabinoid systems, as well as to our, our literal environment, you know, how we engage and interact with um, other animals and nature, nature mm-hmm. itself. I mean, the endocannabinoid system almost, almost screaming at us to reincorporate botanical medicine and high quality foods back, you know, into our lifestyles. Um, And I think that's, for me, that's what is most fascinating about this journey is the fact that many of us are waking up to recognizing, again, to repeat myself, that that health care encompasses so much more than we receive in the medical system.
3: Yeah, I think that is an excellent point. And Jessica, I noticed you like nodding your head a lot through there. Is that something that resonates strongly with you as well?
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I thought Chris Kresser actually put it really well in one of his newsletters this week. Chris Kresser is, Rachel, you can correct me if I'm wrong. He's a Chinese medicine doc, I think, Um, but he he puts out newsletters once or twice a week to folks, and he put it, healthcare is actually self-care. Um, mm. And it's this idea that, uh, as Rachel was getting at, we are with ourselves and out in the world and with our families or friends all of the time, and we spend maybe 10 minutes like every quarter with the doctor at most um but but we've been sort of conditioned to expect that our our interactions with the medical system are what's supposed to make us healthy but if you take 40 minutes out of your year with a doctor how is that going to make you healthy um but that's yeah. what conditioned to expect and and we're really trying to flip this paradigm of you no know, the actual work of being healthy um of taking care of yourself happens 24/7 every day of the year right and and so healthcare really does become self care um and i think for the for the most part it's individuals whether it's patients definitely patients for the most part but then some clinicians like ourselves as well who are really pushing the medical system to recognize that we, we really can't be broken down into individual pieces of my immune system versus my cardiovascular system. Um, all of these things work together. Medicine likes to break it down to try to simplify it, um, but at the end of the day, we as individuals know that system really hasn't done a great job for us. So we're pushing the, the system to be more holistic and to think about health a little bit differently. Um, but even uh, you know, yet yeah, and still, we as individuals do need to recognize that healthcare is self care. Um, so what am I doing every day uh, or not doing every day to promote my own health and wellness?
4: And, and I'm going to add one of the things that I think understanding the endocannabinoid ohm, I think it screens at us to obey, you know, the laws of the universe that includes, yeah. that includes understanding your spirituality, which is a key part of, as far as I'm concerned of being well and i've got to the point where i actually will tell patients if your doctor doesn't ask you about your spirituality and i'm not talking religion i'm talking about your connection then he hasn't done that or she hasn't done that complete assessment because one thing that the endocannabinoid system does it will manifest exactly you know what we're thinking how we're responding and we Mm -hmm. be cognizant of that bring that back into the wellness sphere and i've gone from talking about sick Getting healthy again, too. Let's talk about just being well. Let's put the concept into people's brain. So that is what gets manifested because we're obeying the laws of the universe. You know, what you think and believe will manifest eventually. So, how can we push people back to thinking? And the endocannabinoid system points that out to to me very clearly, in my opinion.
3: Yeah. I, you know, what this raises for me is. I imagine this is maybe a little hard for people because it ties in this issue of um, taking back responsibility for yourself that you've thrust outward to other people. And sometimes I think people feel like taking on responsibility for their own wellness and you know being in check with all of these variables that are influencing their being. Um, sometimes they, they find that overwhelming. And part of that is because of the way we're taught to think about, Mm -hmm. about these things. I, you know, I think about the way that I learned to conceptualize medicine and food and diet, you know, growing up as a, in elementary school and into high school and everything. And you, you just think that, You eat to sustain yourself and be full and live and you get sick, you go to the doctor, you take medicine, you get better, you know, and that's, that's the paradigm that a lot of us, you know, get carved into, into our brains and it can be challenging. And so I guess a follow-up question now to this is what has been your experience when you work with patients and you present these dynamics, you know, that by stepping into this world of herbal medicine, cannabinoid medicine, understanding the endocannabinoid system, you know, which then ties into things like exercise and meditation, all these other things, you know, that it does bring up this concept of self-care, self-responsibility for wellness. And what has been the general patient response to that sort of shift in, in perspective?
4: Well, one thing I'll tell you, I think most patients who come to us are coming to us because they have failed conventional medicine. So yeah. they're ready to listen for something different, right? They're they're looking mm-hmm. for better answers. And I happen to believe everything working together is the best answer. But with that being said, when I explain to them in terms that they understand that they have a system in their body that's working to keep them healthy and explain to them that their health really belongs to them, not the doctor or anyone else. I really see that the bulb go off in their brains. They get it as long as we put it in terms that they can understand. So I'm not going to talk to them like I'm talking to another doctor, but I can explain Mm -hmm. the system to them in terms they understand and people get it. They're looking for that help. They want to know what's different. And when you compare someone coming to you with, on pages and pages of drugs that they're trying to get off and it makes them feel horrible and they can't um, communicate with their family or can't hold their grandchildren, you know, can't interact with their friends, they are ready to hear, how can this plant help, help me? Um, and we should be able to answer those questions. I think our job as clinicians is not to tell them what to do, but give them the information that they mm-hmm. then can process to make better decisions for themselves, once again, getting back to self-care. That's their responsibility. And if you want to be healthy, don't wait for the doctor or the FDA or DEA or anybody else's alphabet to tell you what to do. Get the right information and they really do. I mean, they are so uh, enlightened and and you can see the light bulbs just go off. They're ready to hear it. That's my Oh yeah.
3: Yeah, you're you're speaking my language. Yeah, go ahead, sorry.
4: No,
2: that's totally fine. Um, I was just Mm -hmm. gonna say, you know, them being ready doesn't mean that it's not still work right like a lot of times Mm -hmm. i like to say you know what we teach um is very simple really right we're teaching nutrition like natural whole foods exercise deep breathing you know these things are very simple that doesn't necessarily mean they're easy especially when we're talking about people who have gone through their entire lives with the sort of mindset that you described Um, you know I think some, sometimes we have people who, um, you know, they come to us and they've gone through this journey with a conventional medical system over a long time and they're fed up and they are very ready for something different. Other times we have people who are coming to us where they've had some kind of catastrophic diagnosis and they they haven't really had time to process all of this, but they're just sort of desperate and they're doing anything they can. And, um, and, and for them, it's like a giant mindset shift of like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, I can't like i need to be in ketosis for my cancer so i can't eat bananas anymore like what are you talking about right um so sometimes th- there is still a, a lot of work that needs to be done um but as as my mom was saying people are ready for for something different um but it it does, it does still take work to sort of get to that next step
3: yeah absolutely and you know we this this whole concept of taking on the role of educating for the sake of people being able to make mindful, conscious decisions to support what they actually are after in life is something that resonates with me so profoundly because it's one of the reasons that I'm passionate about science education in general of like raising awareness, trying to get information into the hands of people that need it to empower them, you know, is is something that is is hugely needed in, in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, uh, we're in our country, our, our public scientific literacy ratings are, are abysmal. Um, mm-hmm. and so there, there is this profound work to be done, um, of education. So absolutely. I love hearing that, that piece too, that sort of empowerment piece. And one thing I'm interested in hearing about, and this is something I really want to hear from, from each of you. How did you first learn about the concept of the endocannabinoid system and what was it that excited you about that? And then I'm interested to see how that excitement spread to all of you.
4: <laughs> well, I probably we should start because it started with me. I spent most of my, my, my career being an anesthesiologist and when I retired, I was invited to work in one of the uh, clinics and um, I, was, I was surprised at the kind of people who showed up to the clinics. I was just shocked. Um, they were people who I never would have expected were looking for marijuana. Um, with that being said, you know, I wanted them to understand why are they spending some of their last dollars to get these cards? And yeah. it was obvious to me, they wanted me as a clinician, and some of these were new people coming in wanting to use cannabis for various reasons, um, wanted me to explain to them how to use cannabis. I mean, I didn't even know what cannabis was. I had no idea about cannabinoids or terpenes or what the plant looked. I, I knew nothing, absolutely. Here I was, an anesthesiologist, knowing physiology and pharmacology, I could not answer a single question. So I did a dive into, okay, what is it about this plant that these people are searching? And when I found out the medicinal benefits, I was shocked. Then I thought, okay, now why is it not part of American Pharmacopeia? Because I, you know, read not a part of that. So I went and read the congressional records, so I got rid, they got rid of it. And then I did a big dive into the science, and that really blew me away. I'm a very techie person. I love that stuff. And the more I read, the more I wanted to read. And I was shocked, and I quickly came to the realization that this wasn't about cannabis at all, but it was about this physiology that they actually knew about in 1990s, to the whole decade, which was called Decade of Brain, they knew about this. Yep, and yep. Yeah, there's, people who are not allowed to use this. You know, I lost a mother to breast cancer and a son to noxious brain damage. I couldn't help but think I was cheated as a clinician mm. or as a, a consumer mm-hmm. as well. Could I have not helped my people? And so I was just, fast. I'm still fascinated and read everything I can get my hands on. And the more I read, the more I wanna know about it. So my getting involved in it sort of spread to the rest of them and I'll let them tell you their stories. Yeah, I'll go
1: next because uh, I was uh, following uh, and I'm somewhat close behind. You know, she's always so many steps ahead of me. Uh, <laughs> uh, when she started, she got invited to staff a clinic. You know, I kind of looked at her sideways because, hey, yeah, we've spent 35 years in conventional medicine. You know, the only box you had for cannabis was uh, drugs of abuse, you know. And, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, even though in the emergency room I see a patient, oh, I'm on medical marijuana, I say, okay, yeah, let's just move on to the problem you're here for, it, you know. And, and uh, you know, easy just to to step by, uh, but uh, you know, again, uh, I had the opportunity to start seeing uh, some of these patients in the clinic. You know, filling in uh, uh, from the same clinic she was working with, and and uh, and I, again, it was astounding uh, introduction that that uh, she relayed. You know, these were people with serious medical problems, complex medical histories. You know, just just the uh, you know. Things that uh, they've been diagnosed with or been through for trauma and everything were just astounding, and uh, the, the the stories of patients are telling you about the success and the benefit they were getting with cannabis was was just eye-opening. Again, in the emergency room, you know, with so much focus on, on pain control and medication problems, so opiate problems, uh, and and everything and. And when you get a few thousand people or more telling you, you know, I was able to get off my opiates and manage my pain with cannabis, you know, your, your eyes are open. You, you, you've got to listen to that. You know, yeah. whether there's, you know, these controlled, uh, double blind studies or not, you've you got to listen to what your patients are telling you. And, uh, you know, so that, that was, uh, uh the mindset again, you know, uh, 35 years of conventional medicine, we didn't know anything about the physiology. And, and so it was almost a, a reawakening and, and enjoyment of medicine to you know have this mm-hmm. whole new area opened up to us. It. And, and it's just so fascinating. Um, and uh, the, the more we learn about it, uh, the more we see there's, there's so many reasons that it, it should help and it can help. Um, we have to realize it's not a panacea, it's not 100% for everybody. Uh, but you know we're all different with our uh, own endocannabinoid systems, our tone, our metabolism. Uh, these are all factors that that play into it. So uh, you know, but uh, it's it's just been a, a wonderful, fascinating uh, learning experience.
5: Yeah,
3: excellent. And um, Rachel and Jessica, how did how did your um, exposure come into play with that? Was it? I mean obviously you were seeing what your parents were doing and and hearing you know about what they were studying and all of that but what did that that look like for you
0: i I mean i i had always been suspicious of our sort of secular conventional medical education from the outset jess and i went to tufts for a dual degree in business and medicine And so very quickly, we were introduced to the business of medicine (laughs) and recognized that we were into a chronic care system Um, that did not have a whole lot of solutions for helping us help patients heal, which, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm speaking a bit for Jen, you know, she'll she'll chime in here in a sec, um, which is the reason why we wanted to become doctors in the first place. We wanted to learn how to help people heal. Um, You know, we didn't know we were going to be educated into becoming just cogs in the wheel of a conventional Mm -hmm. system again the sick care system and you know I would ask attendings in medical school why we why why did why we did not learn nutrition why why are we performing surgeries on diabetics and folks with heart disease but not having the conversation with them about how they can attempt to reverse these diseases through natural solutions like natural whole foods and my questions were always dismissed. Um, I think, the, the the last time I, I took any of their responses as you know fact was when a surgical attending told me that one we don't have enough time to talk to them about lifestyle and nutrition and two they're not gonna listen to us anyway.
5: Oh, and I thought wow. that was
0: the most disparaging comments you know I had heard to date and I mean I, I was so disappointed that I considered not going into residency after graduating Mm -hmm. from medical school and finding an alternative career with my degree. Um, But, you know, I had conversations with my parents and and just, and decided that I would go into family medicine residency. And I chose a residency program that also exposed me to integrative medicine. So I went to a residency that was a part of the um, Andrew Wiles integrative medicine residency pilot. So I got some know some education into the natural sciences and natural medicine and when these two started talking to us about their experiences i would go to my attendings yet again and 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 this is north carolina um so pretty conservative state but i would ask them their thoughts about cannabis as medicine and i already knew the answer i was really just trying to like feel them out (laughs) um what do you think about the medical potential of cannabis and it was always met 100 of the time with the same old response that we're used to, there is not enough research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew there was enough research to validate it as, a, you know, a therapeutic option. It had been legalized in several states, you know, by this yeah. point in time. Um, so, you know, my curiosity was already peaked with respect to natural, uh, natural uh, methods mm-hmm.
5: to, to healing, and
0: you know, I came home after residency, started working in the same clinics my parents were working in, and was happy to learn about the science of cannabis and the pharmacology of cannabis and the endocannabinoid system so that I could have intellectual conversations with these patients who were trying to make sense of the products on the marketplace. So I had to learn something to give them good recommendations. And then on top of that, at that time, we started getting involved in organizations in the industry And so I'd be asked to write articles about the endocannabinoid system and the history of cannabis. So, you know, academically speaking, I I had to learn that information so that I could, you know, intelligent um, uh, newsletters and articles and such like that. But, um, you know, for the most part, I think for all of us, we had overwhelming awakening to our own health and taking command to our own health and healing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I feel like all four of us have, have, you know, to some degree, and maybe not to the entire degree, Jess has always been really, really healthy. Um <laughs> <and> <laughs> our own lifestyles and our own personal philosophies to cater to the health of our own endocannabinoid systems and we are able to impart that wisdom, you know, onto our patients. So when, when we're educating patients or anybody else, we we are discussing with them what we practice ourselves.
5: Mm. Mm
2: yeah for for myself rachel did describe a lot of my experience rachel and i went to medical school together which was good that was fun it was nice to have a (laughs) a a built-in ally um going through medical and business school together um and and like rachel i initially went into training for family medicine and i had chosen family medicine because of all the specialties that i had been exposed to and was aware of i thought family medicine was the one that was the most versatile, but also the one that might be closest to what I sort of conceived of as healthcare, right? Like from birth to death, mm-hmm. taking care of people in a primary care setting, and uh, we're gonna talk about lifestyle, we don't do that. you know. <laughs> 80% of the time I was juggling diabetics, laundry lists of medications or, uh, you know, patients with COPD or, or heart failure or whatever it was, right. Most of the time I was still managing chronic disease um, and not really getting to talk to my patients about lifestyle. And so um, about midway through my intern year in, um, in, in, Family medicine. I made the decision to actually transition to preventive medicine. And so that's what I completed mm-hmm. training in. So I'm, I'm a board certified preventive medicine physician. And I transitioned to preventive medicine because I was like, Oh, this is the thing. This is even more mm-hmm. preventive than family medicine. Maybe this is what I've been looking for all along. Um, which, come to find out it's not really, it it certainly is more preventive focused than family medicine, but it's really a a primary care and public health specialty. Mm -hmm. And so I still found myself in family medicine clinics, feeling like I was just sort of banging my head against a wall, managing drug lists, but not actually telling or talking to my patients about how to thrive um, and how to live well and how to improve their quality of life. So I just found myself really frustrated um, and as I was completing residency, this was really when you were starting to pick up more and more. My mom was starting to pick up more and more. Cannabis clinics, she was telling us about her patients in the cannabis clinics. And it, and full disclosure, at first I was like, mom's lost it. Like, <laughs> I don't know what she's talking about, right? Because in medical school, we only yeah. learn about cannabis as a drug of abuse or a gateway drug, right? We, we don't learn that there's anything redeeming or beneficial about it. And so I was like, mom's been like, Ca- caught by these crazy people and she, she joined the, the cult <laughs> and, but but what but what really sort of piqued my attention and and when i left residency i actually too like rachel went directly into working in cannabis clinics i was in california but i was working in cannabis clinics and the and the reason why was because my parents were both sharing stories of the patients right so they were telling stories of patients in their cannabis clinics who were, you know, either they were having great remission or turnaround of whatever conditions they were seeking cannabis for, or like worst case scenario, maybe they weren't, you know, getting better from like a, you know, a pathology perspective, but their Mm -hmm. life was improving, right? They felt they could engage more with their families or friends or whatever. And I was like, I don't see any of that in my clinic right? I don't see any patients getting better or feeling better. They're just getting sicker. They're getting more medications, feeling crummier. And that's not what I signed up for um, when I went to medical school. So it was really the patient stories for me that were very compelling and encouraged me to to sort of follow my family's footsteps and learn more about it. Um, And as as I got into those clinics, I think I experienced a lot of what you experienced, mom, but I had the benefit of Having learned something from you and Dad already, so patients were coming to cannabis clinics knowing they wanted to try cannabis, but not necessarily knowing how to use it or how mm-hmm. to use or what they should be looking for. Um, and so I had to learn how to guide them um, in, you know, this is THC, this is CBD, this is how you can use them together, this is how um, it's going to, you know, work in your body. And I had to learn about the endocannabinoid system as part of that. And so um so yeah really it was the the patients themselves that drew me to that space um and then h- trying to help fill their needs really you know spurred me to learn more and more
3: yeah definitely that's um you know this there's like a pattern here of stories that i'm hearing from a lot of um healthcare physicians and nurses that um have kind of been um i guess kind of disenfranchised with the traditional you know um healthcare model um and it's it's fascinating the more um healthcare professionals that i talk to how similar those stories are of wanting to do what it is you sign up to be a doctor for you want to help people heal and improve their life and you know all these things and you try to navigate the system to try to figure out where your place is in that system to actually be able to do that work and then you kind of discover well uh, there's not a good place or, you know, like the system has gotten in such a way that it hasn't carved out the, the right place for someone to do the type of work you're actually trying to do. And then you end up having to kind of uh, totally rethink this whole concept um, of health and wellness and and kind of um, piece it together on your own and among the community of people that are going through the same thing. And the nice thing is there are a lot of you out there that are going through that same experience okay. of trying to figure out how to shift, you know, a healthcare career towards doing what it is you signed up to do in the first place, um, and I think there are going to be books written about this phenomenon, um, you know, coming out that are going to describe, you know, the past couple of decades, the next decade or so is this time period where there was this big exodus of very talented healthcare professionals from the traditional model and into this this new. Uh, integrative, holistic, kind of focused lifestyle-focused um, style of medicine. So that's, I um, it's it's super fascinating.
4: And it's going to be patient-driven because uh, patients are looking. For something different. They are pushing us. I mean, they are looking for something different. And if anything, what's interesting, I think about our story is that none of us, we weren't sick. There is no reason for us to go to cannabis. We were not sick people yeah. looking for that mm-hmm. answer. It was really understanding and it being fascinating about the pharmacology of cannabis and then the physiology that cannabis served. And I think quickly we realized that there's more to life or to existing than just cannabis, which is what thousands of years younger than the, in, in the cannabinoid mm-hmm. system. And there were so yeah. many things in society that we can manipulate. And it's almost like putting a puzzle, doing that puzzle yes, yes. together, and getting the joy from completing that puzzle. You know, you think about the Rub- Rubik's cube, mm-hmm. how you quickly turning, yeah. green turning. It's kind absolutely. of absolutely like that, getting the pieces to fit correctly. And I think we as healthcare providers, somewhere somehow, we lost that. We lost <laughs> that drive, you know, to and to solve and create and manipulate for with. Uh, as now I call checkbox medicine, check box medicine. We've given...
2: Say that again, Rachel?
5: Turned into
0: a profession of doers. We're mm. doers, thinkers, and the doctors of old were always pursuing the truth. They were always pursuing knowledge, um, seeking at all costs, seeking process improvements at all costs. We don't do that anymore, Yeah. right? We're like what you said earlier about just the sort of the, the thinking, the paradigm um, that is not self healthcare, right? That is mm-hmm. the dependence upon these systems. Like our medical profession is victim to the same thing, right? Now we're told what to do by mm-hmm. those that are, that are, are, are funding our medical schools and our hospital systems, right? We're being told what to do by big business, by big pharma, um, By big food, right? People yeah. are not aware. A lot of our health associations or medical associations are funded by big agriculture,
5: mm-hmm. right? Yep.
0: The big conglomerates that are controlling our food supply. We have, um, you know, the, the American Diabetes Association being funded by, you know, uh, companies that process high fructose corn syrup, <laughs> you know, and pump that into our food, which is, which is ironic because
5: yeah.
0: we, know what, we know what high fructose corn syrup and other highly processed foods do to our body with respect to causing inflammation, inflammation being a root cause of yeah. chronic disease like diabetes yeah. and heart disease, etc. cetera. Um, we don't do a good job critically appraising the research that is telling us which pharmaceutical drugs we should be using, you know, to solve for some of these disease processes. And there are a lot of conflicts of interest interest present. And, um, you know, I don't think we we spend within medicine, we spend enough time critically appraising where the funding is coming from, where the recommendations are coming from. We are so busy trying to see a patient every seven to 15 minutes that in, Mm -hmm. in some ways, We're now relying on the efficiencies that, um, you know, EMRs, practice management systems and protocols provide us, but it's happening at the expense of our own integrity, at the expense of our patients'
1: lives. Yeah. And just to to expand on that a little bit, uh, you know, with the uh, uh, electronic medical records and everything, uh, you you know, you hope it's good intention, because I think physicians always have good intention, but it Mm -hmm. comes down to something we're doing, you know, protocol, you know decisions okay if, if you have a patient and they kind of fit in this box okay we're gonna follow this protocol that's not always the best for that patient mm-hmm. and and so it makes you kind of lose focus when you're pressed for the time you know you're not going to spend a mm-hmm. little more time to listen to this patient and uh, you know it, even when you look at conventional pharmaceuticals yeah it works great for maybe 40% of the people are treated Yeah, you know, some some people but nothing for and others they have adverse side effects. But that's sixty percent of them. Okay, yeah. but everybody started off put in that box, and uh, yeah. you know. So uh, again, it comes back to what I said about my experience with listening to the patient. Yeah. You know the stories they tell you. You know, we don't need a controlled scientific double blinded
4: study to hear what that <laughs> patient is telling us. Well, yeah. so like, that's right, and they're patient, not for your you know, blind studies. Not that yeah. studies aren't needed to, to validate, ultimate validation, but patients are not ready for it. They're just not.
3: Yeah. Well, and this, this actually relates to something else I wanted to ask you about. You know, as clinicians working with, um, when it comes to the endocannabinoid system, we have uh, limited tools to actually measure that system. Um, but you've touched on a critical point in that that doesn't necessarily matter in that if, if you're working closely with a patient and um, focusing on lifestyle changes and overall quality of life outcomes and those sort of things, you don't necessarily need to know all of the exact mechanisms right now to help somebody. Um, but one of one of uh, sort of the, the problems that, uh, or questions that I've, I've encountered in the healthcare community is how do you work with the endocannabinoid system when you can't measure it outside of a spinal tap or something which is still only going to give you this narrow snapshot you know because endocannabinoids are built on demand you know and that sort of thing so how would you reply to to that sort of um um i guess reservation about endocannabinoid system um science or or medicine in general
0: I, you know, my response for a very long time now is that we have enough information, scientifically speaking, for clinicians who are already trained in anatomy, physiology, and pharmacology to make pragmatic decisions, very practical decisions yeah. along with that about what they should be using. It's it's actually a lot simpler than people recognize. I think as soon as we start talking marijuana, people can no longer compute, uh, they no, can no longer apply. There are years and years and years of of education and ability to critically think and I think that's one of the biggest problems right now um you have more information on the science and pharmacology of cannabis and the the physiology of the endocannabinoid system both when it's functioning you know uh, normally and when it's dysfunctional to make good decisions we do um so you know I think Jason you hit the nail on the head like we don't necessarily need more and more and more studies. We'll benefit from them.
3: Right. We'll benefit
0: from them. are going to be wholly informative. But anecdote, in my opinion, is the most important data point. We can no longer continue to shun anecdotal evidence as though it's not as important as mm-hmm. you know, the data that we can glean from these meta-analyses of these gold standard trials. If something does not work for a patient, it does not matter how many studies have demonstrated that this drug is more effective than the placebo. That's when we're getting into the n of one, right? Yeah. That, that that patient's personal story and their personal history provide us the most valuable data at the clinical level um, that we can use to help make changes to whatever we're recommending, um, um, that will direct us, help them make sense of all those products that are out in the marketplace mm-hmm. that by have not been made to make sense like they have not been made <laughs> um with using science to inform them and so you know it's going to take those of us who, who who recognize that we need to fill a gap mm-hmm. um to and do that and we have enough information to confidently do that and i get it not not all of our our peers in the medical system you know have the audacity or the guts or the <laughs> guts or whatever word you want to mm-hmm. put in there or the courage to step out on a limb and do it. But patients and consumers are using cannabis now. Yeah. Like my mom said, they're not waiting for the alphabet organizations to get on board states have legalized it, even in states that haven't legalized it uh-huh. or finding it. And eventually they're going to come into a clinic or emergency room or, you know, uh, a surgeon's office <laughs> or surgery and we healthcare providers are going to need to understand something about the endocannabinoid system and the pharmacology of cannabis without bias. Yeah, you know, we have to provide our patients, and so we have to have that foundational knowledge to do so. And and by and large, real quick, mom, by and large, we're winging it with the pharmaceutical drugs that have mm-hmm. been FDA.
4: Yes. yes. <laughs> and I want to say that's one of the reasons, Jason. We always lead off with the history of. of the whole uh, journey cannabis has traveled from you know, being used for thousands of years to demonization to back to disrupting. That history is so important because there was no studies done then. And thousands and thousands of people used it for various reasons and got relief from it. There is no no blood, blood studies done or double blind studies done. And, and those anecdotal stories do become just as important. I'm not saying that we don't need those double blind studies, but the, the research now just helps us to fine tune how to use it and not everybody yeah. needs to know it to that degree but some of us do and i do think people who are creating products they do or hire mm-hmm. somebody who will help you create the products that are going to be more efficacious but my answer is you know you didn't need studies when you took it off the american pharmacopeia they did not yeah. picked it out and so now we and use it for our health, where are your studies? You know, it's such a contradiction, you know, hypocrisy there. But just think about the thousands of years that people used, you know, herbal medicine before it got labeled uh, quack medicine, or that doesn't work, or whatever they start labeling it. You know, the thousands of years that it brought relief without killing anyone, without killing anyone. Can we say that about our pharmaceutical drugs? And I'm not saying we're getting pharmaceutical yeah. drugs. But we need to learn how to use them just as appropriately mm-hmm. as we want people to yeah. use cannabis.
0: Yeah, but mom, you also like to say, you know, not until we had, had the understanding of the endocannabinoid system as we do now, did we even understand how some of these pharmaceutical FDA approved yeah. drugs worked. And now, point. some of the drugs that have been FDA approved we do not know how they work. Yeah, we might have a study or two. Like some of these drugs have only had a couple studies mm-hmm. that have demonstrated you know, some efficacy. But there are some drugs we absolutely have no idea how they work at that cellular level or at the pharmacological level. They just do and we can prescribe them off label, meaning there are no studies that have mm-hmm. demonstrated that it is beneficial for the condition we we're uh, um, you know prescribing it for. Right, that is weaning it. Right, that's why we call medicine the practice of medicine. Yeah. We we have these degrees because we've earned the agency to help work with patients and de- and determine what may be best for them. And we need those patients to come back and provide us their feedback so that we can make tweaks and make adjustments. Okay. This is like we're never gonna have the recipe we're never going right, to know right. exactly what to do even with all of the gold standard studies in the world every individual is different and so we're going to have to take the time to listen to our patients and ourselves right and yep. patients their bodies and ourselves as as patients our own bodies in determining you know what's best for us at any given time and and that's going to be a lifelong process for a hundred percent of us
3: yeah we have
0: absolutely. to get not knowing everything
3: absolutely yeah and this, this leads into uh, we've, we've kind of touched on a couple of things here, but one thing I wanted to make sure to ask all of you are what are some of the, the most significant prevalent misconceptions that you encounter about either cannabis or the endocannabinoid system um, that just sort of uh, keep coming up for you that you're having to address frequently?
0: That cannabis is still a
2: menace to society?
4: <laughs> <laughs> they don't believe it. the cannabinoid system exists.
3: Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting.
2: I mean that's that I mean, you know, the endocannabinoid system, its its primary components were all identified, I think, by nineteen ninety-five. Mm-hmm. Rachel and I graduated from medical medical school in gosh, when did we graduate twenty twelve? <laughs> um, so almost twenty years later, not one word of the endocannabinoid system um was taught to us. And you know, they say it takes 17 years for um the findings of research to trickle down into mm-hmm. actual application. But, you know, it's been well past 17 years at this point. And and most recently I heard that something like 13% of medical schools, I don't even know if it was medical schools, I think that also included like nursing schools, Mm -hmm. starting to mention that there might be an endocannabinoid system or that cannabis Mm -hmm. might be medicinal. So, yeah, you know, it's when when you have clinicians who, you know, are well into their careers and they've never heard of this thing. And and the only context in which they have heard about it is what well, cannabis is dangerous and it's a drug of abuse and it's a gateway drug and it makes people lazy and stupid. Like it, it's it's hard to do, undo some of that um, some of that that education, right? Like I will sometimes say that the war on drugs um, and specifically on cannabis was some of the most effective propaganda that we've ever mm-hmm. right people. We've seen patients who are who are on their deathbed and literally will still not try cannabis because all of the things they know about it. Um, mm-hmm. it is mind-boggling to me. Because even if I thought, you know, cannabis really was the devil's lettuce, I might be willing to try it if I thought it was going to save my life. Um, so <laughs> there is a lot of stigma and fear and just mis and disinformation that has to be unprocessed or deprocessed, deprogrammed, and it's. Um, it takes a lot of work which is why we do always try to start with the history and the science um because a lot of clinicians once they understand that oh there is a system there then they'll then they'll they'll sort of get on board but there are still some of the naysayers yeah. who don't even want to accept that
4: there's a physiology and there's there there's system yeah i've heard that
5: pro
0: cannabis but you guys are pro cannabis and we're like what
4: like, <laughs> we're,
5: we're pro health. <laughs> we're pro
0: facts.
5: We're, yeah. know, we're
0: pro knowledge. Yeah. And if the science overwhelmingly speaks to the benefit of cannabis, that doesn't—I mean—that doesn't make us biased, right? right? right. The, the the science of and the pharmacology of cannabis speaks for itself. The physiology of the endocannabinoid system speaks for itself, and we're just excited to talk about it because we believe that it is, (laughs) the endocannabinoid system is um, or should be the target of all of our therapeutic modalities, Mm -hmm. as far as we know right now, right? Until we find something bigger than the endocannabinoid dome, the endocannabinoid dome is it. So how can we, you know, match what we know about endocannabinoid dome, especially with respect to dysfunction, which leads to disease? How can we apply our knowledge of plant pharmacology, even you know monomolecular drug pharmacology mm-hmm. to modulate right? working with it to reverse disease? To, to me that's not taking a pro-cannabis approach. Um, that's not what we're advocating. I think inherently, yes, we, this is pro-cannabis. I, I will say that. I'm not ashamed that I am, I'm an advocate mm-hmm. for cannabis legalization and for science and medical informed regulation, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm proud to say that, but we're, we're not, you know, shooting into the dark here. Right.
5: right? Yeah. We
0: Recognize that cannabis can be used as a tool to do for health, what nothing mm-hmm. has been able to do thus far. And we believe that we should be taking, um, a very intentional chance on this, on this commodity, on this mm-hmm. wellness Absolutely. substance. And, um, you know, it's not lost on us that we need to mitigate risk, right? right? right. There, there are risks that come with mm-hmm. using cannabis can it be misused and abused yes it
5: can but,
0: but, but yeah, yeah but how do we also provide opportunity to optimize consumer and patient experience with cannabis right so can we find that sweet spot in the middle where we're protecting people mm-hmm. but also helping them thrive like dr
1: Jess mentioned before right. yeah we want to shift that paradigm a bit uh, because you know cannabis has been considered a drug of abuse and uh, you know, the conventional medicine is uh, starting. Mean, well, maybe it has some medical uses, you know, but we want to shift that paradigm. No, this is a medicine first. You know, you apply it properly, you know, in, in all its different forms, you know, for whatever you're treating, you can get a good result. You know, the, the problem is that just like a lot of medic- medicines, you know, opiates, for example, right, they do have a potential for abuse, misuse, you know, mm-hmm. overuse, uh, all those things. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you you read a lot of the literature, they're concerned about uh, everything from addiction uh, to, uh, you know, particularly with children, you know, what's the uh, damage to the uh, developing brain, right. you know, all the uh, uh, negative uh, things uh, that uh, when we're talking about appropriate medical use of cannabis, uh, you know, those really are not a big issue because you're you using it in, in a way with a purpose and in dosages that uh, we, we just don't see those those things. All, all these studies that they relate about you know uh, damaging to your development, you know changes in IQ, uh, a motivational syndrome, the addiction. Those are all studies on long-term high-dose smokers of uh, THC, you know, dominant cannabis. Right? That's, that's not a medicinal approach. So uh you know when you're you just like everything in medicine it's a risk benefit ratio yeah and when you look at the risk profile of cannabis it is safer than 99 of the pharmaceuticals on the market okay so again if we just change that that different focus that is a medicine first And yes you know people do have reason to use it or abuse it you know, but uh you know just like uh you know Having a six-pack of beer on a weekend, uh, you know, uh, if people are using it recreationally, that's that's not really bad either. You know, if they if their intention is intoxication, you know, it can do that. But uh, uh you know, it's, it's it's a matter of a different perspective, you know.
5: Yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah, totally. And uh, related to what you just said, um I know we're getting close to time here, so I promise I'll start wrapping it up soon, but I wanted to Um, Got a couple more questions. And one thing I wanted to ask is you, you touched on some of the one, the safety profile of cannabis. So it's one thing I've talked about in multiple interviews that I find frustrating is that the safety profile of cannabis can be so well known yet the use and clinical experimentation with cannabis can be so prohibited. Like it's, it's just a weird, funny uh, paradigm there. But beyond that, yeah, there are there are some risks to cannabis, and so I wanted to ask you what are what are some contraindications or um, situations where you um, would you know kind of have a little more caution with a patient? Are there certain conditions that it tends to um, really not jive well with each other, or you know, co-administered with other medications, that sort of thing? You know, I know we we know now how th- I mean, all these cannabinoids affect the liver enzymes in different ways, but you know, CBDs become uh, well known as is exhibiting that grapefruit effect, and so we know a little bit about that. But can you spend uh, just a couple of minutes talking about some of the, you know, the actual risks around cannabis and how they can be mitigated so that um, you don't have to worry about them so much?
1: Yeah, I think it starts off with the, the whole concept of, of what we call the minimal effective dose. Yes. You know, when yeah. we're patients, you know, we, we just start with a, a low dose, even doses, and then uh, it's a gradual titration. You know, people talk about trial and error. I always say we, we're avoiding the error part. Uh, we do time <laughs> yeah. and hype. Okay? And uh, and that's generally going to keep you in that range where you're not going to see adverse side effects. Uh, I would say, you know, the, the adverse effects are primarily related to THC mm-hmm. because uh, it can have... Uh, a very stimulatory effect. Uh, you know, it can increase anxiety, paranoia, mm-hmm. you know, even psychosis, you know, in those really high doses. Mm-hmm. Again, usually an edible product because first-pass mm-hmm. metabolites liver much higher blood levels of that first metabolite, 11-hydroxy-THC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in my experience in the emergency room, and you know, if we saw anybody with any kind of a THC toxicity, generally was an edible, whether we're impatient or just didn't know that it was, a, a, you know, a, magic brownie and uh yeah. end up having kind of adverse effects mm-hmm. physiologically uh, it'll give you the you know, racing heart um, you know some of the studies do show that uh, there is a potential uh, increased risk for uh, possibly atrial fibrillation um, again in my experience i had one guy who came in with classic crushing anginal chest pain uh, i think it was a heart attack it was just angina uh, but he was uh uh, uh dabbing 80 percent THC to see how much he could do yeah. <laughs> so i mean you really got to got to work for it uh, but but even naive users you know yeah THC it'll it'll give you a rapid heart rate so you know there may be some reason to to be cautious if you have heart disease you know if you have uh, uh you know angina you raise that heart rate and you affect mm-hmm. your blood pressure uh you, maybe it'll precipitate uh, uh you know some some heart related prone So that's one one group I always have to be cautious with,
4: um, and, uh, that have like hepatitis C that's active, you know, you have mm -hmm. to appreciate what THC will do to a sick liver. Versus mm-hmm. what CBD will do to a sick liver. So, someone who has active enzymes increasing, I will caution them. Maybe they should stay away from THC and use CBD to try to heal that liver. So, there are certain patients that you do want to be more careful, and I think that's where educating and understanding mm-hmm. what the individual cannabinoids can or will do. Or the patient who is, you know, uh, a schizophrenic and, and and have anxiety reactions. Well, you're not going to want them to have THC. Maybe you want them to have CBD. And opposite, the opposite patient who is down and depressed, maybe they need a little THC. So this is where you start to, to get into the nuances of what the cannabinoid mm-hmm. will do. And certainly elderly people who are on pages and pages of medications, Warfarin or, some, or even kids who are on, you know, multiple seizure, seizure medications, I think we have to make their clinicians aware they're on these things because they do affect the cytochrome P450 system and how those other things are metabolized. Anyone at risk of falling, you've got to be a little bit careful mm-hmm. by, by, you know at, you know, counseling them to take THC or anything else that may increase their risks of falling. So there are certain patients that we do look at and have to look at everything before we recommend what's the best cannabinoid profile. And that could be you know either a cannabinoid or when did you take this cannabinoid or how do you take this cannabinoid? Uh, all of those medical issues can change the way we're going to suggest, you know, an approach to these different patients because of their medical history. Diabetics are another one. you know what are you what's the best cannabinoid you want them to use? That's going to improve their system. So, yeah. we really do take a serious look at those medical histories and try to provide the best cannabinoid terping approach for those medical histories. And so, it's not just throwing CHD and CBD at people, it's, it's looking at their <laughs> medical history. Okay, I know what this cannabinoid does, so maybe we need to do it this way. You know, those sort of things.
2: Well, I think the takeaway is, you know, there's very little risk to using cannabis when you have appropriate medical guidance. Yeah, no. um, and that's I think that's what's really important for people to know. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, frankly, I believe there is nobody, there's probably somebody, but there's almost nobody on this planet who could not benefit from using cannabis in some way, shape or form, whether it's children or elderly folks, pregnant women, people who have mental health disorder, there is some way, shape or form that all of us likely would benefit from cannabis.
4: I have said well, children, I say, well, children have ACS's too, don't they?
0: Yeah. There is no evidence to date that has demonstrated a true contraindication, um, to using cannabis. Now we need to be specific about what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Cannabis is a genus, right? It is a genus of plant, of yep thousands of chemical variations. So when it comes down to risk-benefit ratios, we can't just say that we're appraising cannabis. We have to appraise products and chemical profiles and help and help match that right chemical profile to a condition right that that a patient might have. So you have to get into the weeds. I think we should always proceed with with caution, right? Yeah. I mean it doesn't matter what a doctor's recommending. Before a doctor recommends something, they should they should go through a list of, of precautions
5: yeah. because
0: we are making decisions on behalf of another life. Yeah. Right. And this other life is trusting us to give them good sound expert advice. So I think you know every every recommendation from a doctor, regardless of what's being recommended, um, should be arrived at with caution and through precaution. Yeah when it comes to applying the medicine of cannabis to any given condition, care is going to have to be given to cre- recommending the right chemical profile yeah. for that person. So maybe that chemical profile is devoid of THC for yeah. various reasons. Um, maybe it's present for various reasons. Maybe CBD is not recommended to be a part of that chemical profile for whatever reason. Um, it might not be. So you know that's another reason why we talk a lot to industry um, and we talk a lot to cultivators and processors about using the best that we have, right? The best that science has afforded us to create products that are going to be meaningful, that are going to be yeah. broadly available too Not all people need Rick Simpson oil, right? High <laughs> yeah. tea products. Not all people need CBD rich products. Like yeah. we need to have bioavailability and biodiversity in our medical and adult marketplaces so that we can serve patients and consumers yeah. where where they need to be served. You know, I I am concerned about um, you know big pharma getting involved because the way they've always done things is mm-hmm. to, to target isolates and and or um, only provide us with a few options, a few right, variations. Right. We understand the endocannabinoid dome. And you understand that we need a, a, a breadth of options um, to help patients navigate through you know through healing. Yeah. We need options, variety. That's what precision medicine is. And we're not going, there is not going to be a one-size-fit-all approach um, with respect to precision care. They're paradoxical, they're oxymorons, yeah. they don't go together, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> in, so in order for us to get more precise, we actually need more variety to choose from right i mean um, and I think you're... That's cannabis medicine like it's it's helping us provide more precise care um and we need we need everybody along that supply and demand network to understand that
3: yeah i mean it's about having um a diversity of tools to work with if you're only given a hammer and you're told to you know go fix this crack in a window <laughs> um, you know, you're probably going to break the window. Um, so yeah, you need a diversity of tools. It's, uh, something that uh, diverts totally from cannabis, but there's a, a conversation that I like a lot between, um, Alexander Shulgin who, um, used to do a lot of work with, um, developing psychedelics and researching psychedelics and he's passed away now, but he uh, has a really good interview where, uh, Terrence McKenna asked him, um, what do you think the point is all of these, you know, chemicals are, you know, that you're making and he's like, I don't know, they're tools. Like other people, society, you know, civilization has to figure out what to do with these tools. I just am producing tools to throw in the tool chest, you know, <laughs> for the future. Mm-hmm. Um and I I really like that idea that all of these these products, these cannabinoid ratios, terpene profiles, all these different things it's about providing people with tools. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, going back to, you know, yeah, we don't have good tools to non-invasive ways to measure the endocannabinoid system, but we have a lot of tools to manipulate the endocannabinoid system in different ways to work with and through working with folks like yourselves that are thinking in this way of, okay, I want to listen to the patient. I want to understand their experiences. We want to try these tools, get feedback, dial this, you know, dial all of this in and get this person, you know, going in a good direction. I think that's, um, that's absolutely the way it needs to be, and absolutely the the FDA approval model of pharmaceuticals is not favorable to that approach of having lots of tools um, mm-hmm. <laughs> for many many reasons. Um,
4: pay to play game, but that's why we call ourselves endocannabinologists.
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It really is a pay to play game. It's like running for president. Like you've got to have right. got to be a millionaire. You that's know. Got to. <laughs> And so it's always going to bias the field towards a certain type of way that um, actually doesn't really necessarily benefit us um, a lot. Um, I've got one more question for you and then we'll be done. This is a question that comes from uh, the Curious About Canvas Patreon. So I try to give our supporters a chance to submit questions and I pick one of those to, to ask our guests, um, to allow them a chance to, interact with you. So our Patreon question that we have is, how does the endocannabinoid system relate to fibromyalgia and neuropathic pain?
4: Oh my goodness.
3: <laughs> I know, it's, it's kind well, of a big well, one.
1: I think that a lot of these uh, these chronic uh, pain syndromes, uh, you know, and, and fibromyalgia has been misunderstood for years, yes. uh, okay. you know under other acronyms you know for i know uh, 20 years at least it was uh, totally in your mind you know (laughs) know? it's not real Uh, but uh, i think we've uh, really found that it's more an uh, abnormality in our uh, uh, neurologic signaling system Mm -hmm. Uh, talk about the complexities of uh, uh, you know pain signaling you know nerves to the spinal cord, you know, to interpretation in the central nervous system, um, you know, all the neurotransmitters that are involved, and uh, uh, again, the Maestro was involved. You know, it's mm-hmm. the, the feedback uh, uh, mechanism, uh, you know, across the synapses, uh, but also uh, in other areas, uh, uh, you know, as far as modulating uh, the, uh, you know, GABA and yeah. uh, the other uh, uh, glutamate neurotransmitters uh, glutamate thank you um and uh, you know so it's all a matter of balance if they're out of balance you know then you get this uncontrolled uh, signal that uh, mm-hmm. you know, man is in continuing pain even though you know we can't demonstrate uh, obvious uh, uh you know cellular inflammation in those tissues uh, you know, or we can't show you know a structural abnormality. I always like to call it you know normal structure behaving badly. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's it's a, it's a matter that there's something out of balance it's that kind of continues to give that you know that painingly. Um, now sometimes are identifiable cause you know like neuropathic pain. Okay, peripheral neuropathy with diabetics uh, where you know there's just damage done to those peripheral nerves. Uh, okay. Postherpetic neuralgia where you have that. You know uh, viral inf- uh, infection that has caused damage to the nerve and then it results in this persistent pain signaling uh, and this is where we feel it up centrally mm-hmm. um, so uh, you know uh, it's it's a matter that there's something uh, that's broken down in that feedback mechanism and uh, so if we can get the uh, uh, endocannabinoid system uh, to improve the signaling and whether mm-hmm. that's by my- these other modalities, or the uh, you know exogenous cannabinoids, um, you know we, we may get some relief of those symptoms. Right. Um, so I, that's one area I'm still kind of astounded at. Uh, people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy think, okay, it's it's a you know internal nervous system. Uh, they get great relief with topical products. Yeah, you know whether that's just you get enough penetration in the uh, tissues. You know where those peripheral nerves are that you shutting off that signal at that point. Uh, you know other neuropathies; they may be more in the spinal cord. Uh, mm-hmm. You know where there's an intrinsic uh, feedback mechanism and a lot of these, uh, uh, you know, nerve tracks and and things. Uh, so uh, the topicals mm-hmm. probably not going to reach there, but you know if you ingest it, you know we get uh, you know more uh, involvement at those levels, and. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of all intimately totally connected, you know. So with, with the module of that ECS, uh, if we can get relief in any of those modalities, uh, you know, we don't argue with yeah. success.
0: But fibromyalgia has been considered a clinical endocannabinoid deficiency too. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and very simply put, right? There are some disease processes that have um, that that have you know through preclinical end- clinical study demonstrated to be true deficiency. So, you know, I always like to use the example of vitamin D deficiency where you have a deficiency, if you can supplement that and get Mm -hmm. improvement or balance in some respect, you can't, or you should. And when you have a true endocannabinoid deficiency, can we look to exogenous cannabinoids to fill that void? I think it's been demonstrated to us, um, not just through studies, but in clinics or clinically that Mm -hmm. people do improve when they supplement with endogenous cannabinoids, um, in such a way to, yes, treat their pain. But, um, you know, our assumption is that it's, that it's helping modulate, it's helping uh, restore some balance mm-hmm. to that endocannabinoid system feedback, the feedback loop.
3: Yeah. Awesome. I think that's a perfect answer. So, um, uh, those of you on Patreon that wanted that question answered, there you go. <laughs> I know there's a lot more to to dive into there, but yeah, the glutamate thing that, you know, I'm familiar with that. And, you know, it's something that uh, listeners might not be familiar with is that cannabinoids can uh, do this thing called uh, retro retrograde signaling, moving backwards across a synapse. Um, and the way I describe how this relates to pain, sometimes it's almost like um, cannabinoids are able to modulate the volume knob of... Yeah. Um, the experience of pain it doesn't tend to and i i know this from personal experience because i've had multiple spinal injuries and things and been down this road but it it doesn't necessarily make the pain go away it doesn't mute it but it certainly seems to be able to turn the volume knob one direction um to make it more manageable um and, and that's just my personal experience um but
2: that's one of my favorite like metaphors for explaining to people the activity of the endocannabinoid system is like thinking about an apartment building with thin walls and your neighbor is playing (laughs) their music too loud and you want them to turn the music down, you might send them a text, which that could be that your endocannabinoid going across the hall and knocking on the door and saying, Hey, we heard your music, you can (laughs) turn it down now. And then they turn it down. That's that's exactly the analogy I use to describe the activity of the ECS.
3: Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) and and it it, it does seem like something that that clicks for people they seem to intuitively understand um that i that idea um that's that's cool yeah and um i know we we've gone you know almost an hour and 15 minutes here i you know i want to be sensitive to you know your time and 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 everything i know um we're coming up on the weekend and everything so i don't want to keep you too long but um, I want to say, I really, really appreciate all four of you being willing to sit here and chat with me for, you know, the past hour and 15 minutes. I've really enjoyed it as I knew that I would, I know we could sit here and talk for hours probably about all of this stuff and dive into all sorts of different, um, areas, uh, that would probably be very interesting, but, um, I appreciate having this time. And, um, I really hope that, um, especially as, I mean, we're sort of in this this brave new world of trying to figure out uh, with coronavirus and just all of the things, all of the things that are coming together at once in our culture. Um, we'll see how things process. But uh, <laughs> this year was supposed to be a year of uh, traveling and seminars and all sorts of things like that that didn't happen. But I do hope that our paths cross physically at some point um, in the near future um, and that we we get to, to hang out at some point in person. Um, But in the last couple of minutes here, I want to hand over the platform to each of you or one of you, however you want to handle it. But let people know um, how to learn more about the work you're doing, about your clinics, um, anything you might have coming up. I want to just give you the platform to uh, plug anything and everything you want to and share any last bits of uh, any comments or, you know, anything that we haven't gone into. Um, The podcast is yours until you want to end it.
2: Well, thank you for having us. This was a pleasure. We we could geek out on this all day long and all week long. So we yeah. appreciate having <laughs> a fellow campus geek to, to chat with. Um, the easiest way for people to follow us, they can um, follow us on Instagram at the Knox Docs. Rachel and I are on there um, at Rachel Doc Knox at just.knocks. Uh, our website is doctorsknocks.com. We'll, um, we try to keep an updated calendar on there of where we're speaking or I guess, uh, in this day and age on what <laughs> website we're speaking um, and and we have blog a blog that we try to add to somewhat regularly so that's one way that people can um keep learning about this rachel has an amazing ted talk um mm-hmm. a TED portland talk from 2019 about the ecs um what am i leaving out those are the, the ways clinics. to find us oh the clinics thank you the, the clinics you can find the clinics online at the dot as well um, and I'm sure Rachel has other projects she'd be happy to share about the training program oh oh yeah program um we so one one big piece of, of our work is educating um, and we are making you know a big push to educate other healthcare professionals but also the, the general public and the industry at large and policymakers literally everybody um and so Advent Academy um, is our education program people can find it at adventacademy.com um, and we have, monthly cannabis rounds, um, where there is a presentation of a topic. So this month was cannabis and autism. Last month, we did Mm. this and viral diseases. Um, Coming up in July, we'll have cannabis and cancer. But there's a a presentation that can be watched on demand. Um, And then at the end of each month, there's like a live Q&A session so people can ask questions and learn more. Um, And so you can find out all about those programs at adventacademy.com.
3: Awesome. Um, anything to add, um, David or Rachel, before we go?
1: No, I think right. uh, as far as the clinic, you know, we do have a, a physical uh, office space. We see folks in person, but we're, we're also in you know, the Corona crisis time, we're doing more and more telemedicine. And uh, mm-hmm. so if you go to our site, uh, you know, we, we can uh, you know offer those options for, you know, patient appointments and all. also
3: Awesome. Well, that's great. So everybody listening, um, go check them out. I mean, there's, yeah, it, you're all doing so many things all the time. So it's it's always fun keeping track of you. There's plenty to digest and learn from. And um, so uh, so go check all of that out. And if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can find us at cacpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and we also have a channel on YouTube. So check that out. And then also, if you want to support the show um, in general, we don't deal with advertisers or sponsors so that we can explore the topics we want to and say the things we want to say and not worry about upsetting somebody that we are financially dependent on. (laughs) So if if you want to support the show, uh, you can become a supporter at Patreon at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. Uh, Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay curious and take it easy. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.